Today, we see promises being fulfilled in Israel. We see the prophecies happening before our eyes. Are we also about to witness a terrible mistaken identity? As Christians today look at what's happening in the world, many see not an imminent return of Jesus Christ, not a coming Messiah to save Israel and to save the world, but rather a future Antichrist. This highlights the danger of misinterpreted prophecy. Could Jesus' future actions be attributed to an Antichrist? We see the danger today, already at the point that we are at. Breaking Israel news has been targeted by ancient anti-Semitism, but it's Christian media that's reiterating these classical anti-Semitic claims. And if you look into it, it's really about them expecting a future Antichrist to show up in Israel. So they look at the things that are happening today, and to them, the Zionists are paving the way for the Antichrist. And as a result of that, they oppose anything to do with Zionism. And any talk of the coming of a third temple just puts up red flags for them everywhere because they expect that to be what the Antichrist will do. <clears throat> He's to set up a, a temple in Jerusalem. He's to be a king over much of the world. And But this is not the work of anything good. This is not a savior, but rather this is the work of Satan, as they would call it, an Antichrist, something that opposes Jesus Christ. In actual fact, this isn't really a new twist at all. They call it a new twist, but really it's centuries old. So the Roman Catholic Church has been labeled the Antichrist for a long time. They look for ways to point the finger another way, to say Antichrist is way off in the future. It's nothing to do with us. It's a future tyrant. But today we have this modern Christian distortion. It's widely reported that Antichrist will build a temple in Jerusalem. Some believe he will be a Jew, some believe he will be of some other identity. But he will be in Jerusalem, and he will be accepted by the Jews, and he will attempt to establish world rule from Israel with large success. Many even talk about him, him performing miracles and all kinds of other amazing things. So when we talk about Antichrist, you need to, we need to understand what it is that we're talking about. There's very few places in the Bible where it's even mentioned. And one of them is 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. So many today look for a singular future tyrant. But let's look at John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19 together. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now notice in that passage that Antichrist is not simply a singular figure. But it says, even now, this is in the first century, in the time that the Apostle John was writing, even now are there many Antichrists. So Antichrist then is not a singular figure, but something that there could be, or was, many of. So the Reformers, in the days of the Reformation, generally had a singular focus and all agreed on what the Antichrist was. Here's an example from Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote, as he was drafting 
these Articles of Faith in 1536. He wrote, The teaching, that is, of the supremacy of the Pope, shows forcefully that the Pope is the very Antichrist who has exalted himself above and opposed himself against Christ, because he will not permit Christians to be saved without his power, which nevertheless is nothing, and is neither ordained nor commanded by God. Here's another one, Thomas Kramer. Whereof it follows, Rome to be the seat of Antichrist, and the Pope to be the very Antichrist himself. I could prove the same by many scriptures. So they saw it as a chain of popes, not necessarily one pope. There would be a singular Antichrist maybe in existence at one time. But you have a succession of popes which became Antichrists. Here's another one, John Calvin. Some persons think us too severe and censorious when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. Paul's words in Second Thessalonians 2 are not capable to any other interpretation. It would be equivalent to Antichrist for anyone to make a bishop to be an intercessor between God and man. Cotton Mather, an American Puritan, says, The oracles of God foretold the rising of an Antichrist in the Christian church. That's an important point, too, that it's something that was to rise in the Christian church. This was not a future furor in Jerusalem, but rather a feature of the Christian church. And in the Pope of Rome, all the characteristics of that Antichrist are so marvelously answered that if any who read the scriptures do not see it, there's a marvelous blindness upon them. They didn't mince their words back then. Here's another one. Charles Spurgeon, it is the bound and duty of every Christian to pray against this Antichrist, and as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not the popery of the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. Today, this is not what we see, though. So why the shift? What happened? Well, if you put yourself in the Pope's shoes, this identification of the Pope as Antichrist sits a little, shall we say, uncomfortably. So the 16th century saw the rise of the Counter-Reformation, powered by Jesuits promoting other views of prophecy. They used infiltration of other groups to promote schism and alternate views. And the Counter-Reformation introduced alternate ideas of prophecy. There was Praetorism, which placed most of the prophecies in the past, and there's a large gap and a few for the future. Futurism counted most of the prophecies, definitely these ones about Antichrist, to have not have happened yet. This effort had incredible success. Here, this is a quote from the Bible magazine, volume 15, number 2, page 16. John Ramsden writes, By the 20th century, Rome had achieved incredible success in persuading many of its Protestant contemporaries that it was not, after all, the Antichrist. Instead, and under the umbrella of, ecumenical, of the ecumenical movement, all Christians should unite in looking for the manifestation of Satan in Jerusalem, which is what we've been talking about, during a future three-and-a-half-year period. This would occur after the rapture, in which Christ is supposed to take his followers to heaven before returning to earth after the battle of Armageddon. So this is something in the future. It's after the believers are taken away from the earth. It's not something that we need to look at, look for now in our lives while we're here. 
Going right to the Catholics themselves, the current catechism that's posted on their website, under the heading, The Glorious Advent of Christ, the Hope of Israel, says, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. For a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief toward Jesus. So let me just interpret that for you. This is the Catholic website, it's the Catechism. What they're saying is all Jews must become Catholic before Christ will return. Therefore, anything that happens without all Israel being converted to Catholicism must not be the coming of Jesus. Slightly further down, under the heading, The Church's Ultimate Trial, there's some more comments that are interesting for us. Number, five, number 675, Before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems the price of apostasy from the truth. Read, turning away from Catholicism. The supreme religious deception that is of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism, notice that it's associated with an apparent coming of a Messiah, by which man glorifies himself in the place of God and his Messiah come in the flesh. And then they carry on in the next article, 676. The Antichrist's deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope, which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment, the final judgment. So until after there's been a final judgment, until after our current history, sometime way in the future that you can't really even barely imagine about, something definitely not now, this will happen. So don't look around in the world right now to try and find out what Antichrist is. It's a long way off. Don't look at us. So this is a very transparent attempt to try and point the finger back at Protestants. The Antichrist deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope, which can only be realized beyond, blah, blah, blah. So as soon as somebody says that something is about a messianic hope happening, ah, that is the work of the Antichrist. But this is spread. It's not just anymore in the Catholic Church. As we said, they've had great success in spreading it. So again, from the Bible magazine, this is volume 17, number two. It's this caption here is saying exactly what we're trying to say. Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, even the Catholic Church have taught people to expect the coming of a Jewish antichrist. How will they identify the real Christ when he comes? There's more information in the Bible magazine. And this one and other issues, if you search the website, you'll find plenty. So here's a couple of men that have been preaching along this track. Um, the top guy there says, Zionism is the red carpet of the Antichrist. And below, it's blasphemy to support any aspect of rebuilding 
or of building the temple, because that is the devil's temple, he says. Again, for further information, I would like you to point I'd like to point you to this book, The Man of Sin, A Future Fuhrer in Jerusalem, or Roman Catholic Apostasy by Ron Abel. I have a PDF of that and I'll put a link on this page for you. But this is exactly what we were told would happen. Jesus would come and the world would oppose him. We we know that from Psalm two, which we'll look at in a second. But could this be the way in which the world is turned against Jesus Christ? That they're looking for something false, something wrong, and they've been turned away by Rome and mistake Jesus when he comes. Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then he sh shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings, and be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's Psalm 2. But why... Why do they do this? Why would the rulers of the world, why would anybody take counsel against Jesus? And he comes, and the amazing things that he does. But if somebody was expecting somebody to arise in the world, specifically in Jerusalem, in Israel, establish a kingdom, build a temple, and establish something close to world domination, to convert the world to a different religion, all these things, why would they why would they not think that this was their Antichrist to come? So what we're going, what we'd like to look at now is what can we expect when Jesus returns? We've pointed out some things that we say we're saying will not happen. This is not about what's about to happen. There's not about to be a future Antichrist. Antichrist has been around for a long time and will oppose Jesus again when he comes. So what things are working towards then? If we roll way back to the time of Abraham, there were promises given to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So notice this is a specific place that he could walk to, and blessings are given. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So the Christian hope, then, is exactly the same as the promises to Abraham. There's no difference. We just get to be part of it. 
but these promises are real and they're to happen on earth. And the land is a physical land. Down in the next chapter, chapter 13, God says to Abraham, Look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. So again, this is a physical place that he could stand on. He could look toward the winds. It's something that could be given to his seed. And verse 16, his seed was to be made as the dust of the earth. So a man can number the dust of the earth, and shall thy seed also be numbered. And chapter 15, verse 7, And he said unto him, I am Yahweh that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit. To give thee this land to inherit. In the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. And then there's listed the people that were then living in the land. So there was no confusion. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It was a real, literal piece of land where the ancient tribes were living, where the promises were given. It was real land. It could be viewed, walked in, lived in, possessed by others, and promised. Genesis chapter 22. Again, <clears throat> real things, real political events that had to happen literally on this earth. Genesis 22:16, And said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, this is just after um, the event of the, of the sacrifice of Isaac or the almost sacrifice of Isaac because God stopped him, Verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So there were to be enemies in the world who would be controlled by the seed of Abraham. And when we come forward into the Acts of the Apostles, we have exactly the same kind of message coming out again. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, this is just before the Lord Jesus Christ ascends to heaven. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So they're looking for a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and so on. But the Lord Jesus Christ kind of corrects them. He does give them a response. He says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But if they're totally off base and there wasn't to be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel, would he not say, Sorry, you've got something a little wrong. There isn't going to actually be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. But no, he only talks about the times and the seasons. Because there will be a literal material kingdom on earth. They needed maybe some correction on timing, but not on the substance of what they were saying. Luke chapter 1 again, verse 30 and 33. The angel that came to Mary before she brought forth Jesus. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, 
and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And then he spells out some things he was to do. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. When he says the throne of David, it's not that he would sit on the actual wood or stone or whatever that chair was. It's not literally about a chair, but rather the kingdom that David presided over, the kingdom that he was captain and king over. Jesus was to take that position to be king over Israel. And Isaiah chapter 49 points out that not only will Israel be saved, but it is to be extended beyond that. It says, And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel. That's easy. That's nothing to bring Israel back into their own hope, their own olive tree. It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. So it's it's an easy thing for God to bring Israel into the hope. That's the easy part. Israel is not cast off forever. God's work is not completed with them. We've not seen the end of the story. But it's a light thing for him to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And there's a promised king to come in Jerusalem. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. So there's a a first primary dominion that comes to the daughter of Zion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So the center of the kingdom, Micah 4 verse 8 says, is Jerusalem. So that is where he is to reign from. And if he's set up, if he comes, if he restores again the dispersed of Israel, if he, if he, if he saves Israel and establishes a kingdom in Jerusalem, what will these people think? Here again, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, the promised king in Jerusalem. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Again, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform this. Another thing that's important to note in many prophecies, and this is one of them, in this prophecy here, in Ezekiel chapter 20, starting at verse 40, just to note the order of how things happen. Let's read it together. Ezekiel 20, verse 40. For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith Adonai Yahweh, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, 
and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. These are literal, tangible events that will happen. They've been promised and they will happen. Verse 41, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered and will be sanctified in you before the heathen. Again, when was Israel scattered to all the countries? This is recent history. We're, we're seeing them still coming back now. Verse 42, And ye shall know that I am Yahweh when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted up my hand to give it to your fathers. So it's the same place where the fathers went. They're coming back to the same place, to Israel. Verse 43, And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled. And ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. Notice that. They come back. They come back into the land of Israel. And then, there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled. So there's no point looking at them and saying, look, these Zionists that are coming back, they're secular. These people that are coming back and establishing the land, look at what they're doing. Look at this. Look at that. Look at the other. No. They come back to the land. When they're in the land, then God works with them and there's a spiritual revival. Verse 44, And ye shall know that I am Yahweh when I have, I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith Adonai Yahweh. <clears throat> so it's not because of what they have done, and it's not that they are rewarded according to what they have done, but rather it is the purpose and the mercy of God that saves them. Again, Romans chapter 11. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. So there's, there's, there's nothing hidden here. It's concerning the gospel, concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. They are enemies to that. They're enemies. And he says it's for our sakes. But as touching the election, as touching the choosing of God, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. If you think about it, if you were to die and your children were to continue after that on what one thing would you want? What one thing would you want of somebody if it wasn't to take care of your children? So as Abraham is called the friend of God, God says, I will preserve your seed. I will perform the promises. For the father's sakes, the children of Israel are brought back and are eventually saved. Because he says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So all the things that we've read before in the prophets and in the law, and these things are going to happen. These things that it says about Israel, these promises and calling of God are without repentance. They don't change. For as ye in times past have not believed God, it's the, the Gentiles, these nations, these Greeks, these the, these people in Rome, in time past, they didn't believe God, but now they have obtained mercy through the unbelief of Israel because when Israel rejected the message, they turned to the Gentiles then. So because Israel had rejected, 
then they turned to the Gentiles, and then people like these Romans were able to believe. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And if you look up that word mercy, according to Thayer, in this context, it means specifically of God granting even to the unworthy favor, benefits, opportunities, and particularly salvation in Christ. So, this is something being granted not based on merit. It's not because of... You can't look at them and say, you can tell they're God's chosen people because of X, Y, and Z, and that is why he's saving them. No, they're the... They are the literal descendants of Abraham and out of mercy for Abraham and out of mercy for his promises and for his holy namesake, he works with them and brings something out in the end. Here again is just a point of timing. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9 and 10 they don't recognize Jesus, actually, until the time of the destruction of the nations against them. So we can't look and expect them to be converted to Jesus any time before that. Zechariah 12, verse 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, that I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. So <clears throat> in the day that God destroys the nations that come against Jerusalem in that say at that same time I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn so this is not something that happens any time before the destruction of the Gogian nations that come against the land of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 38 says they're going to be like a cloud to cover the land. There's a tremendous invasion. It will be an awful time. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called. Their back will be against the wall. They'll be at their wits' end. But God is merciful and he saves them. And then they realize the person that God has sent to save them is Jesus of Nazareth. And so, <clears throat> the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So this comes, the kingdom comes to the daughter of Jerusalem. The kingdom is established in Zion, and then other dominions, other kingdoms serve and obey. Once again, as the nations see this, as these Christians see this, will they know what's going on? Will they be deceived? And in Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the kingdoms of this world are turned over into the hand of Christ.
And so the nations are required to come up and worship. Zechariah 14, verse 6. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. So all these nations come up against Jerusalem and they attack them. And <clears throat> Israel is saved. And then there are people that survive and are left, as it said here. Those that are left will be required to come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And so the light of God goes forth from Israel and Isaiah 27 verse 6 happens. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. So rather than Antichrist, rather than these terrible things that these people say are going to happen, rather than that, the Messiah, the Savior, comes to Israel. He saves them. He establishes a kingdom in Israel. We could turn verses that show that he will build a temple and his rule will extend out from Jerusalem, from Israel, and fill the world. And so we look at it today and we see God building up Zion. But thou, O Yahweh, shall endure forever and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come for thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of Yahweh and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When Yahweh shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. What an amazing verse that is today as we look and we see Zion being built. It doesn't say when Yahweh shall build up Zion, Antichrist will come. No! When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. When these people are in trouble and they turn to him, he will hear. This shall be written for the generation to come, and for the people which shall be cre- the, and the people which shall be created shall praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. That's Psalm 102, verse 12 to 18. This has been the Bible in the News with Tim Billington joining you. Please come again next week for more Bible in the News. <laughs>